Hey listeners, as you know by now, this is a podcast about the global public health crisis brought about by the pandemic. But sitting here in Washington, D.C., I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the other crisis that has gripped America over the past two weeks. Police violence. Thousands of people across the country have taken to the streets after George Floyd, an African-American man, was murdered by a white police officer. And all too often, these protests have been met with violence from the police. Some of you have asked whether we will address these protests on the podcast, and the answer is, we will. We've discussed among ourselves how to do this in a way which is meaningful, respectful, but also fits with our broader aim of looking at how the pandemic is shaping the world around us. On next week's episode, we're going to look at how the coronavirus has laid bare structural inequalities in countries around the world, and why many people are now standing up to say, enough. And we want to hear from you on this. Please write to us at don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com. And now, to this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, uh, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy. You sounded a bit unsure there. Yes, <laughs> uh, I may. Deputy editor. I, I mean, because I, I, I actually like to see the editor better as a title. Maybe I can. And I'm James Palmer. I rule all, see all. Let me try it again. I'm James Palmer, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy. On this week's episode, we're going to look at Southeast Asia, where coronavirus cases have remained low, but the toll for freedom of expression has been high. We'll be joined by Tiki Pang, a visiting professor at the National University of Singapore. And we'll also hear from Mu Sochua, a rights activist and former member of the Cambodian Parliament. But first this. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to recommend the COVID Daily News, Hosts Nate Duncan and Ben Taylor were two of the best analysts in the NBA statistical community, and then the NBA shut down. So they decided to spend hours each day aggregating and evaluating the most important coronavirus news and research. So you can stop doom scrolling your timeline and instead get the most important news to know where this pandemic is headed. Search Nate Duncan in your podcast player. So one of the most puzzling things I think about the pandemic so far is that countries that we expected to have terrible outbreaks, some of them haven't. And then countries that have really well-developed healthcare systems and are really wealthy have just been battered by this, like Western Europe and the United States. I mean, what are your thoughts on this, James? What's behind this? I think there's a number of factors um, that are all working together to create these puzzles. You know, in some cases, it's just been... Um, that super spreader incidents that, ha- mm. you know, just ha- by chance hit some countries early, didn't hit others. I mean, you know, I, I feel like there's an alternate timeline in which a Japanese church hall gets a particularly enthusiastic concert going in like February 2nd. Right. Yeah. Um, and Japan's numbers are way worse. And then in, sometimes it's sometimes it seems as though it's just playing catch up, possibly because of weather conditions, mm. possibly just because outbreaks have been confined to rural areas or less legible places and are now hitting kind of the middle class. And India seems to be a good example of that. We The Indian numbers have come in 
much lower than we expected until now. But now we're seeing mm. them shooting up, and we're seeing like Mumbai's healthcare and uh, other places being overwhelmed by these these numbers suddenly, which is very worrying. But then you have persistent mysteries, like yeah. uh, Cambodia um, mm-hmm. uh, or Thailand. I mean, these are countries that are right next to China, where there's an enormous amount of tourism flowing to them during the winter. I knew many people. Mm-hmm. Um, in China who spent part of the winter in Cambodia when they could get holiday time or even went there for like two months at a time um, because it's, you know, way nicer. But that just don't seem to have been hit by significant numbers. And in some cases you can say, well, the, the maybe the reporting is bad or the testing is bad. But firstly, we're not seeing any sign on, of the sort of uh, death rates or hospitals being flooded that you would expect. And mm-hmm. secondly, this includes places like Thailand, which have you know, pretty good um, healthcare, pretty good media, this kind of thing that you would expect to be picking up on this. So it really does look as though these cases just aren't materializing. Mm. And one, you know, one thesis, of course, is that the coronavirus doesn't just um, affect young people less badly, which, you know, we've known since the start, obviously, that the the older you are, the more vulnerable you are. It's possible that young people may just may also just be weaker carriers or maybe resistant to it in a way that means they're not getting it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so in places where you have, you know, relatively young populations, that may be making it harder for the virus to get a grip as opposed to sort of Italy or the UK where, you know, we've seen it go through nursing homes or old age, yeah. uh, old age communities in particular. Now, of course, we come up with, you know, you can propose that thesis and then you can say, and then you can look at Japan which has the, one of the oldest populations in the world and has just kind of shaken this off. Um, it's also one of the other things that's kind of drifting around is the possibility that um, other coronaviruses may make may confer some degree of immunity. Um, right, there's been yeah. research on that recently, suggesting that um, in some places, um, in some places, perhaps as many as half of people could have some degree of immunity because of ha- having been exposed to earlier to other uh, viruses but mm-hmm. that's really speculative at this point it's and it's very hard to tell but that might create geographical incongruities just where a, a bug went round somewhere you know like six months ago or three or three months ago and c- just gave enough immunity to allow the population to shake that off but i think the real answer is we're still in we're still in very early days i mean it's been you yeah. know six months since this started four months since the whole world started looking at it and we have no clear answers on most of this yeah i feel like arrogance of of some countries and particularly certain western countries may have played a role in this and i think you see that in the difference between eastern and western europe mm, because mm-hmm. as the pandemic was kind of picking up pace you saw leaders in in uh in western europe and the uk is case in point where for a hot minute there, they just decided to go against the grain of the entire rest of the world and do this herd immunity strategy, um, which Sweden has also had a crack at. And it's proven pretty devastating there as well. Um, but in Eastern Europe, countries just saw this and were like, nope, not going to deal with this and just locked down almost instantly. I mean, Georgia, which we looked at very early on in the podcast series. The good Georgia, <laughs> Georgia Tbilisi, not Georgia Atlanta. Georgia was already testing people at the border before they even had a single confirmed case. So they were able to know the first time a case crossed the border and track it from there. And they've had very, very few instances of community spread. 
this goes back to, to something we've mentioned on the podcast before, which is the belief that it can happen here. Yes, and of course, yeah. if you're in Eastern, if you're in Eastern Europe, you know you you experienced like economic collapse, tumult, mm-hmm. political change, all these kind of things. The West has not really had that. Yeah, well, certainly not on the same scale. The idea that calamity could strike so directly at home was really profoundly alien to Western politicians, and that's what created the deep denialism of Trump and his followers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, but it's also what contributed to the incredible arrogance shown by a lot of people in the UK. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I remember during the height of the Italian outbreak, and you know, when the Italian outbreak happened, I was like, well, you know, who could you like, I, I, it was possible to deny it when it was only happening happening in Asia. But like Italy is somewhere that people go on holiday. Mm-hmm. But even then, yeah, there was you literally had TV doctors in England being like, "Oh well, the Italian, you know, the Italians are taking time off because they're lazy and they like to have a siesta." Mm-hmm. You know, the degree of just ins- insane smugness and self confidence. Yeah, I mean, it's this kind of delusion that you know we're in full control of our destinies in wealthy countries, and evidently that's not the case. Yeah, and I, I and the idea that you know it comes down to your individual fate, individual decisions rather than collective decisions, mm-hmm. collective activism. Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, one region that's been really interesting in this is Southeast Asia, where high poverty rates, fragile healthcare systems, and densely populated cities could have been a recipe for disaster. And so far, you know, they're getting off reasonably lightly. Um, And so to learn more about this, I brought on Abby Schiff, who's our deputy editor here at Foreign Policy, who's our in-house expert on Southeast Asia, having lived there for a while. So Abby, you spoke to uh, Tiki Fang, who's a visiting professor and expert on infectious diseases at the National University of Singapore. What was your big takeaway from the conversation when you were reporting on this issue? Well, first of all, I think I learned generally that most of the countries in Southeast Asia have been pretty good at basics, which is one thing Dr. Pong really emphasized. Um, Most of them have been able to test widely. They've really restricted people's movement even during prayer. Um, Social distancing and contact tracing have been effective. And I would say, obviously, the region isn't a monolith, and this certainly isn't true of all countries. But what he spoke about was how there's a combination of factors that came into play that, Mm -hmm. that really helped keep rates of infection low compared with other regions. Okay, so let's listen to part of your conversation with, with Dr. Pang. By and large, most populations in this part of the world trust the government. And to use the term not in a negative way, they are fairly compliant. They are fairly, let's say, obedient. Mm-hmm. Now, that's quite a contrast to, uh, to the Western democracies yes. where, you know, the rights of the individual, blah, 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 seems to be uh, more... Um, important than uh, social uh, responsibility. The second uh, reason is that we have a much younger demographic. In this part of the world, um, the percentage of the population that's 65 years or older is between 4 to 7%. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, you compare that with uh, the European countries, you're looking at 20 to 25%. Mm of the population age 65 or uh, older. Now, there's no evidence to support what I'm going to say next, but in our part of the world, uh, which consists mostly of low and lower middle income countries, uh, people living in probably less than 
ideal sort of sanitary and nutritional mm -hmm. uh, conditions. Um, overall health status may not be as high mm -hmm. as in, in the richer countries. Mm -hmm. People here on, you know, holistically are more exposed mm -hmm. to all kinds of different bugs, basically. Okay. And from an immunological point of view, uh, what that does is basically continuously stimulate the immune system. Oh, that's because on a daily basis, you know, you're dealing with unclean food, right, you're right. dealing with contaminated water. So your immune system, let's say, is always on high alert. So what I'm saying is that maybe immunologically, people in this part of the world, maybe they actually have better resistance huh. okay, to anything that might come along because their overall immune system is primed, if you like. Mm. Okay, not, not against the coronavirus, right, right, right. but against any invader that comes from the outside. So, Abby, you mentioned this before. I mean, Southeast Asia is not a monolith. I mean, there's almost a dozen countries in the region. Did Dr. Pang get into this about how one country differs from the next? Absolutely. I mean, different countries in the region are, are experiencing this pandemic really differently. Um, he contrasted the situation in Vietnam, for instance, which has been really robust in its response uh, with Indonesia, his home country, um, where there's cause for concern. And he was speaking at the end of April and kind of predicting that there would be a rise in infections, which we have seen over the past month. OK, let's hear the next part of your conversation. The other thing that's been very impressive to me is Vietnam. Yeah, okay. Vietnam's been amazing. And, and, and amazing. And uh, if you look at it, uh, mass quarantine right at the yeah. beginning, tens of thousands quarantined in military camps. They recruited the army. Once again, this central command, yeah. you know, one party, authoritarian, if you like. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they developed their own rapid testing kits, which they were able to implement very quickly you know, across large numbers of the population. Yeah. And that's remarkable. It's, that really it's is. so remarkable. And, and you know, <laughs> you think of, you know, the American, how much budget we have here compared to a country sure. like Vietnam. Sure. And you think, how, yeah. how come we can't get those tests? Yeah, well, I'm not going to start on, on the U.S. healthcare no, no. system. But um, the other thing I'd like to mention, in contrast to Vietnam, <laughs> I worry about my own home country, and that's Indonesia. Okay, because I, I worry for the fact that there has been limited testing. I worry about the fact that the population has not been as obedient, okay, in terms of following uh, government instruction, instructions for various reasons. Mm -hmm. I worry because there's a lack of coordination and communication between the central government and the provincial governors, mm -hmm. exactly like what's happening with the, with the United States. Right. So for those three reasons, I'm keeping very close track. Um, we are seeing, I think today, 300 new cases with, I think, nearly 800 deaths, mm -hmm. although I'm going to bet you that that's actually a big underestimate. 40% mm -hmm. of these cases and deaths are in Jakarta. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, that's compounded by the fact, just like Cambodia, but probably not to the same extent, is we have a shortage of health and medical workers. And the tragedy is that 30, 30 of our doctors have actually died from COVID. I mean, that's just, you know, morally totally unacceptable. And that's once again, 
I already mentioned the limited uh, availability of test kits. Tragically, that's related to a shortage of stuff that they call PPE, right. personal protective equipment. I mean, I've seen um, uh, photos uh, that has been shared by my friends in Indonesia of uh, doctors actually using aprons, you know, to try and protect themselves, yeah. fashioning uh, face shields out of plastic bottles yeah. because of the shortage of this uh, uh, equipment. So, you know, um, I think at the end of the day, uh, I hope nothing bad happens, but uh, I do worry. I think the next couple of weeks is going to be uh, cr- critical. As we heard just now from Dr. Pang, I mean, he spoke about the government response, the fact that these countries have, have younger populations. But do you think there's other factors at play here? Well, one thing that I don't think either clip mentioned, but is one of, I personally think, really interesting um, is, you know, there's almost certainly a behavioral science element to coronavirus spread. So if you look at Southeast Asia, people don't shake hands and they don't do the bisu. And I spoke with Dr. Pong about this and he, he said there's there's got to be an element in, in that preventing the spread because even if people are crowded together in workplaces or public transport or out and about, they're just not greeting each other that way. Um, and so you think about how it's spread in the West and, and it, there's almost certainly an element of that. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. So while Southeast Asia has been spared the worst of the coronavirus, regional leaders have still seized the opportunity to crack down on freedom of speech. In the Philippines, the government was given new powers early on in the crisis, which are enabling them to go after critics online under the guise of fake news. And we've seen similar things in Cambodia, where sweeping new powers have enabled the authorities to blanket monitor social media. And in the most egregious case, a 14-year-old girl was arrested for posting on Facebook that she was worried her friend had caught the virus. So I think in some cases, you know, this is just a convenient continuation of uh, a path that these countries were already on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, the Philippines has been shutting down TV stations and arresting journalists from Rapla and from the TV networks Mm -hmm. for years now. Uh, Hun Sen in Cambodia has been pushing the country towards a fully kind of China-backed dictatorship rather than the sort of, you know, autocratic, semi-democratic system it was, again, for for years before this. And so the pandemic has been a, a final excuse, as it were. Um, a convenient excuse, but it's but anything could have been the excuse. Yeah, it's amazing how so many uh, leaders, and not certainly not just in Southeast Asia, but around the world, have picked up on this idea of fake news as just a blanket tool to go after. I mean, where did it begin? That I feel like it's a, it's the past kind of four or five years that we've heard this term, but who kicked it off? 
originally it was invented during the rise of Trump to describe the kind of news that he exploited. Mm -hmm. So the sort of, you know, um, fake Facebook stories and so on. And then he very rapidly adopted and popularized the term to go after the news outlets themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's really something that started in the United States. And but to some degree, it's a it's a convenient label for policies that, you know, autocratic governments have always used. They just used to call it kind of rumor or, you know, media propaganda or this kind of things. But it's a Mm -hmm. convenient, catchy slogan. It's just terrifying when you see it pop up in in such a wide variety of countries. And I I think that we're experiencing a kind of, uh, you know, epistemic crisis, too, because there's so much information available and perhaps because of this, we've had this collapse of trust in um, a lot of traditional sources of information. And so Mm -hmm. people almost pick and choose what they believe. And it's rare that things break through that. uh, Sometimes they do, and I I think we're seeing that happening in the United States right now with videos of police brutality, for instance. That kind of reality is hitting even people whose normal bubbles would deny that. But in some cases, like in Myanmar, the bulk of the Myanmar population simply dismissed the videos and stories and evidence of uh, atrocities against the Rohingya as being entirely propaganda. Yeah. Didn't, you'll know this, you wrote a book on, on the region, didn't the Mongol hordes spread rumors ahead of them about how terrible and violent they were so that people would just lay down their arms when they rolled into town? Yeah, the Mongols had a pretty sophisticated propaganda operation um, that hooked up at one point with the Venetians, in fact, to uh, to work together uh, because the Venetians wanted to destroy their rival city-states trading posts on the Black Sea. And so they pointed the Mongols in that direction and in return for kind of uh, helping them understand Europe. And in fact, historically, any number of empires have had very sophisticated information and propaganda gathering techniques. Hmm. But now I think one of the differences is that everybody is engaged in it so directly on a day-to-day basis on Facebook, on Uh, Twitter, I mean, particularly on Facebook, which, of course, has a very bad record of allowing itself to be used to spread genocidal information Mm -hmm. uh, or fake information, rather. Or, you know, WhatsApp in India with the um, cow riots where people were, were, you know, lynched on the basis of social media rumors. And uh, and the pandemic, I think, has again exacerbated all that, both exacerbated the rumors and exacerbated the tendency of governments to put out their own propaganda and and censorship efforts. I mean, the the pandemic has kind of been the perfect pretext for authoritarians looking to go after journalists, critics, or be it schoolgirls, as in the Cambodian case, because fake news is genuinely very dangerous in the middle of a pandemic. You know, if you're spreading misinformation about how it's spread or ways to protect yourself. I mean, people can get very sick or even die as a result. So there is an inherent interest, even in democracies, to make sure that the right information is getting out. But I mean, the kind of stuff you're seeing in in Southeast Asia is just just nuts censorship, particularly in the Philippines. I think one of the problems that social media platforms have, of course, is that that they can label disinformation as disinformation when it comes from the public, but it's much harder to label it as disinformation when it comes from the top. You know, when right, the, which we saw this week in the US. Yeah, I mean, when the president, you know, I mean, Trump lies constantly. Um, how does yeah. social media, even traditional media outlets like the New York Times, have difficulty calling that lying? Mm. Um, how, you know, how does responsible social media function? And it feels as though we're in a, a period of where these discussions have been, you know, fermenting for a long time and are reaching kind of peak in terms of shaping the way that societies react to them, shaping the norms that societies are going to have 
around online speech and around news gathering as a whole for both good mm-hmm. and bad. So to hear a bit more about how the coronavirus has been used as a pretext to, to crack down on freedom of speech and opposition parties in the region, I spoke with Mu Sochua, vice president of the outlawed Cambodian opposition party, the National Rescue Party, and a former member of the country's parliament. So to begin with, could you just tell us how has the pandemic affected freedom of speech in Southeast Asia and particularly in Cambodia, where you're from? First of all, the pandemic um, is spreading all over the world and even in Asia. But somehow the uh, number of infected uh, people in Cambodia has been very low, around 122, 26, and all, uh, all of them have recovered. Then in that case, why is the uh, Prime Minister of uh, Cambodia, Mr. Hun Sen, uh, wants to have a state of emergency law in his hands? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, when the uh, female reporter asked that question about two months ago, he was furious at her. And then finally he said, um, well, I want to have it, even if it is a 0.1% that I will use it, I want to have it just in case. Right. The, what in case is in case the people who are economically affected in mm. terms of health, in terms of health, we are, we're okay. But in terms of economic impact, it has really um, been heavy on the poor, on the the uh, factory workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about millions of people who are in debts, who cannot pay their debts, who have lost their jobs and so mm-hmm. on. And then... The point is that Mr. Hun Sen uh, wants this law in his hand in case the people rise up because of uh, hunger, because they cannot meet, uh, make ends meet, economically speaking, um, they cannot um, face the impact of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So with the, the law, which is the state emergency law in Cambodia, the law gives full uh, power to the prime minister and the power to even um, monitor, observe and gather information from all telecommunication communications medium, wow. control of the distribution of information. Uh, and Mr. Hun Sen is with the law or without the law, he already has a full team um, to, to uh, monitor the uh, most active Facebooks and uh, Twitters and websites accounts of mm-hmm. people who are active, in, including the uh, our leader, Mr. Samrasi, who has about 5 million followers. Yeah. Um, so we are very um, concerned that mm-hmm. uh, with the law, he can legitimate. So he's looking at legitimacy when they, right. he arrests. Us. He continues to arrest us, uh, but he cannot fully legitimize it. But with the law, he can legitimize it. So they're using the emergency laws to not only go after members of the public and journalists, but also opposition parties as well. Exactly. Uh, the law is adopted, but it has not been uh, implemented yet. Because Hun Sen has said that I can arrest you anytime. 
And he can say it to anyone. He, say, he can say it, he says it all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't need the law, but I have the law. I mean, do you think they will implement it? And what would what and what would happen if they do? That means the military will come out. Mm-hmm. That means um, if he, they can shut down the whole the whole country if they want, mm-hmm. and they will. Um, that means they will cl- they will turn off all uh, uh, all uh, communication through social media. That mm-hmm. and they want to to make sure that uh, we they can disconnect us um, from who are outside in exile from our members inside. Where do you think the situation in Cambodia will go from here? I mean, do you think if the pandemic ends and they lose their justification for these laws, they may take a step back? Or is this going to be the new normal, the new reality in Cambodia? You know, uh, for a dictator, once he gains ground, Mm. he's not going to step back. Democracy in Cambodia has uh, taken a big toll since the uh, dissolution of the opposition of mm-hmm. our party. Uh, we, for decades, we were when we were inside Cambodia, we were able to push through a lot, um, make space for civil society, make sp- and then the uh, independent media, uh, the press, and we have lost all now. We're outside. The people inside are really fearful. That was Mu Sochua speaking over Skype. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Monday. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head over to foreignpolicy.com for all the latest news and analysis on how the coronavirus is shaping the world as we know it. And if you have pandemic fatigue, and let's face it, no one would blame you, we've got plenty of coverage of everything else that is happening in the world as well. I'm Amy McKinnon. I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by me and Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face.